You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Coming up, this week's show features another one of our EOD brethren, so stay tuned for that. Remind you guys to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Help continue to grow this Hazard Ground community by passing the word on, letting others know about this show and what we're doing. Don't forget to leave us a rating or a review however you subscribe to podcasts. doesn't have to be a lengthy review, just a couple of notes about what you like about the show, what you don't like, and we certainly appreciate all the feedback that you guys have given us. Speaking of feedback, you know, it's often that when I talk to guests prior to recording the show, they always say, hey, I've seen your guest list. I don't really feel like I have anything to contribute the way some of your other guests have. And I just want to let you guys know that's not what this podcast is about. It's not what these shows are about. It's not about whether you had some impact that somebody wrote a book about or made a movie of or you were awarded for something. Part of what we want to do here is continue to tell stories of the American military and the people who are in it. I think that is more important than anything. In a sense, you know, we are taking part in chronicling history uh, and the members of the military who help write American history. So it doesn't matter if you don't have some sort of incredible story to tell or you don't think it's incredible. That's not the point. Our audience thinks it's incredible and the people who listen think it's incredible. You give perspective on what you have done and who you are and how you are affected by everything that you have went through. I think those are things that really stick with the audience and why people keep coming back. So we encourage you to reach out to us, send us an email, producer at hazardground.com. And let us know if you have a story to tell, because we'll certainly be happy to tell it. Final reminder about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Sponsors tab or on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. You can do the same thing on your smartphone. Go to hazardground.com. And when you click on the Amazon button, it'll take you right to the Amazon app. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And of course, we donate that right back to some of the great charities that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. This is a big community, and we want you guys to continue to be part of it. We're so grateful that you choose to be part of this show each and every week. Now, with all that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the podcast is a retired Army Sergeant First Class and a former EOD tech who had multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Ultimately, he was medically retired after being injured in Afghanistan in 2011. He currently teaches EOD tactics within the Special Forces community at Fort Carson, Colorado. He is Mike Medansky joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mike, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you guys for having me up. All right. So we've interviewed several EOD guys before, uh, and... We like to joke around with them uh, and ask a very simple question at the beginning. And even though I know the answer, our audience doesn't. Do you have all your fingers? Uh, actually, I do not. Okay. So <laughs> what we like to say in joke around, you're not a very good EOD tech. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Nope. Oh, that joke comes around a lot. <laughs> so you were medically retired after losing some fingers, dismantling a bomb. We'll get into that. Uh, but we like to start at the beginning. How and why did you join the military? Um. So I joined the military at a, about a year out of high school, um, started off with the Navy, um, seemed like a good choice. They offered me a bunch of money for college and, uh, decided that was a good thing to get out of town. And, um, that, that's how I started. What year was it? Uh, 2000, uh, 2000, January of 2000. Okay. So you signed up before nine 11. Yes. Where were you on nine 11? 
uh, 9-11, I was actually in uh, Naval Sea School for the, uh, the cannon on the uh, cruisers and destroyers, 5-inch uh, 54 cannon. Where in the world, though? Where, where, where is that class being taught? Oh, uh, that was out in San Diego. Okay, all Naval right. Station. So when you hear the news of what's going on, what are you thinking? Uh, you know, that was, that was a bit mind-blowing um, to see that. Uh, I was at the Chow Hall with my uh, my now wife, actually. We were eating uh, breakfast, and the news broke, you know, three hours behind the East Coast out there. And uh, it, it was just kind of everything went numb. Um, the school shut down, and they sent us all to our barracks for like two days while everybody figured out what was going on and how things were going to happen. Did you think you were going to war at that point in time? Oh, absolutely. Were you excited about it? Um, bit of mixed feelings, I guess. In what way? Um, so, you know, I joined to, you know, travel, see the world and everything. And um, I knew that was a possibility. And so kind of excited that I would actually get to do my, my job in the real world and, you know, go on deployments. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's kind of a, a scary realization that you could be in the middle of that. Did any of your buddies kind of have different reactions than you? Any of the guys you were training with at that time, at that time? Uh, everybody was oddly quiet, uh, there. Um, nobody really, really had much to say for the, I guess the first day it was kind of like the shock wearing off. And then after that, everybody, you know, uh, we were still in school at the time. So kind of split between focusing on that to kind of take our minds off that and, you know, do a good job at school over there and learn what we were supposed to learn. And then the other half was just, you know, speculation on what was going to happen and how it was going to go down. Do you remember what your instructors were saying? Because um, typically all yeah. your instructors are seasoned military people. They've been around for a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, the instructors uh, were all, you know, pretty somber about it and taking it very seriously. And they kind of changed tone and let us know that they were prepping us for war uh, you know, in the schoolhouse. So it kind of changed from just, hey, we're here having a good time uh, learning about some stuff before we go out to the fleet uh, to, Hey, this is very serious. You guys need to pay attention because you're going to have to use this. All right. So tell me how that training finishes up and where you go next and what happens. Um, so that training finished up um, about, let's say two months later. Um, it's kind of a long school to learn all the, the hydraulics and the, the weapon system, and all the different rounds and everything on that. But, um, Immediately, my ship was actually already on deployment from that uh, that incident. So um, I got flown directly out to deployment from the schoolhouse. Um, I didn't even get to go to where my, my ship was stationed. So that was a bit of a shock as well as a 19-year-old, you know, flew straight out to the Middle East um, until I could catch a, a bird out to the carrier group and then caught a small bird, a helicopter out to my, uh, my cruiser, which was the USS Vela Gulf. And then uh, did three months on that deployment because they were already halfway done. Uh, at the time, the Navy was doing six months deployments. Um, so knocked that out. Um, new experiences and all that. Um, we floated around the Gulf for a while. And then, uh, you know, we floated back uh, through the Suez Canal. Um, and then I finally got to home station three months after getting out of school. So your first experience on deployment, when you look back on it, what stands out the most to you about it? Um, it, it was all kind of surreal just cause, uh, you know, going from, from high school 
through the, the boot camp process and then like straight to a deployment uh, without even getting your unit and meeting the people you're going to work with. Um, I think the thing that stood out the most was just, uh, you know, getting into the flow of things in the middle of a deployment, um, beginning to work with a team that had already been working with each other for three months on that deployment and coming in as a new guy. Um, the Suez Canal transit was very interesting. Um, so that, that stands out a lot. When you finally settle into a unit, um, are you feeling like at any point in time that you made a mistake in signing up, like it was the wrong career path, wrong decision? No, um, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, the, the work was interesting. Uh, I was working with good people. Um, so all of that really just uh, it kind of melded with, with me, and I kind of just clicked with it. Um, enjoyed it a lot uh, for the time being. What's next for you then? When do you get to your next deployment? Um, so the next deployment uh, was still with the Navy in 2004. Um, went back to the Middle East in the same area, doing patrols uh, around that, providing some naval gunfire support. Um, the uh, Iranian transit was a little hairy on that one. I remember us going through uh, past Iran, which is weird with the news from last night. But, uh, you know, we'd, we'd see all the uh, – I guess it's a 13-mile stretch and it's a very thin area that you go through in the Straits of Hormuz and I remember uh manning a gun going through that because there's a lot of small boats in the area you got to protect yourself from all of those and uh I remember a twin armed missile launcher on the Iranian side was just tracking the ship the whole way um just just following us as we were passing by until we couldn't see it anymore so that was interesting that track us um that deployment was fairly uh a lot of stuff didn't really happen. Um, it's kind of a boring deployment, I guess. We had some Iranian boats kind of try to probe us. And then uh, there was a ship near us, the USS Firebolt, that had a, a bomb go off, and they were trying to board a small vessel, killing some of their crew members. Um, so that was not that was about the most significant event on that deployment during that time. That was there that I can remember. Um, we had done some boardings. I was on the, uh, the visit board and... Uh, search and seizure team, VBSS. Have you guys heard that term? No, I've not. What did it tell me more about it? Um, so it's a special, it's, it's considered an additional duty for uh, fleet sailors, but you can volunteer to do it. And then you, they send you to a school to learn uh, small unit tactics, boat boarding, um, basically to search small vessels up to, uh, from small vessels all the way up to shipping container vessels. Uh, for whatever reason, you may need to do that. And uh, I was one of the, the team leaders at the time on that. And we did about, I want to say, 93 boardings at that time. And, uh, you know, we caught some drug smugglers. We caught some oil smugglers. Um, got some intelligence uh, kind of things from, from the boardings that we did. Um, so, you know, we contributed, but um, nothing really, really crazy happened, you know. When you lost those guys, you, you know, did the unit feeling change? Did your morale change? I mean, what are you thinking of feeling at, at that time? So those guys off of that ship were uh, part of our battle group, but they weren't anybody that anybody on our ship knew personally. Um, so it changed the tone a little bit. Everybody, you know, got a little more serious when we were doing the boardings or, uh, you know, getting near shore or something. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like game on. Um, but otherwise it didn't really change much for us. All right. So you finished this deployment. Um, 
you feel like at this point in time, how old are you? I mean, you're, you've got to be 21, 22 years old. Yeah, I was uh, 23. 23. You've got two deployments under your belt. And uh, what are you thinking about what's next for you, not only in your military career, but just in life? So, yeah, that, that's about the point where I was in the life. I was like, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? You know, just floating around the world and uh, doing those sorts of things for the Navy. I really was interested in going into some sort of special operations or EOD it was something I really wanted to do. So I started looking into that, working towards that as a goal, um, you know, going to schools, lots of gun schools, uh, physical security schools, uh, shooting schools and that sort of thing. Um, went and tried out for Navy EOD after that deployment. And uh, I'm a, actually a very poor swimmer um, technique wise. <laughs> so I wasn't fast enough to pass the swim test to get into Navy EOD. And by this point, I was uh, an E5, a uh, second class gunner's mate. So the uh, the in-service recruiter for EOD uh, kind of told me that it wasn't worth their time uh, because I was already so high in rank. I was about to be ranked out of being able to switch over to EOD, um, which was which was a big blow to me because that, that's what I decided that I really wanted to do. It was a really interesting career path that I thought I could do a lot of good in, you know, for a lot of other people. So I started looking at other options. And at the time, the uh, Army was having their uh, first big surge. And they started the blue degree program. Have you heard of that? Yeah, no, and 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 this was about what year you said you said this was? Uh, late two thousand four, early two thousand five. Right. So yeah, I, I can recall my first deployment to Iraq in two thousand five. There was such a shortage of EOD personnel; it was ridiculous. Like you could find an IED in the road, and you'd literally sit there for an hour, two hours, just waiting for EOD to come Absolutely. out. Absolutely, and be, absolutely because of that though, that type of scenario. The Department of Defense said we need more EOD teams out here fast, and they started fast tracking dudes as many as they could get out there as quick as they can get out there, get them trained, and send them overseas. So you were part of that that whole deal. Yeah, kind of. Um, I had the added switch in uh, in branches of service uh, to that. So I went to the blue to green recruiter uh, for the Army, and I, I said, "Hey, I'm in the Navy. I'm interested if you can get me a contract for EOD school because I knew it was the exact same school officer enlisted all four branches go to the exact same curriculum. Yep. yep. Um, I said, if you can get me a slot guaranteed for EOD school, I will cross branches. And, uh, they were able to work it out. They even gave me a bonus to do it. Uh, so then I, uh, I switched over and I started in the army. I was in the Navy on the last day in December of 2004 First day of January 2005, I was in the Army as an E5 going to boot camp. Oh, they had to send you back to boot camp? So they had an abbreviated one for yeah, the blue to green guys. Like a, like a six-week one or whatever it was? Yeah, I want to say it was six weeks. Yeah, okay. That sounds right. I'm, uh, I'm I did mine at Fort Knox. Uh, it was still kind of weird going as a as an E5. They started my time in grade over. Uh, and going to boot camp as an E5 was an, an interesting experience. Why? Tell, tell me about I'm just curious. <laughs> so... First off, there was the, the language barrier because, you know, the Navy and Marine Corps use completely different language, uh, military slang, if you will, than, than the Army does. So for the first couple of weeks, I had a problem, like, even communicating with people because I'd ask, you know, where the the head was instead of the latrine or, you know, ask when muster was. And the drill sergeant, I remember asking me, like, I don't have any sandwiches. What are you talking about with, with the mustard? And uh, the Navy calls formations, you know, muster, like when you get together. And... <laughs> So that that was a bit challenging, um, but after I, I overcame that, um, it went pretty well. Um, I was put in charge of some some dudes 
uh, since I was an E5 and the, uh, the drill sergeants knew I was going to DOD and they were like, you're going to need some leadership. So here's your, uh, here's your intro to it. Um, start getting these dudes squared away. And, uh, was actually able to get it knocked out, uh, with, with no issues, which was nice. And then moved on to EOD school, which is, uh, about a year pipeline. Okay. Um, so once you get through, uh, basic, you go to EOD, that school, what was the most challenging part about it for you? Um, so EOD school is academically very difficult. Um, a minimum passing score for anything, uh, test, practical test or written test is a, uh, 86. So an 85 or below is a failing grade, um, on the practical tests, when you're physically like replicating the techniques they teach you, that is very harshly graded as it should be because it's a, a very dangerous business. But, uh, most of the safety hits on that are an automatic 16 point hit. So it's an automatic fail if you make one little mistake. Um, so the hardest challenging thing about that would have been the, uh, basically it was a fire hose of information and they'd teach you something for a day or two and then you'd test on it and then they'd start the next stuff. And it, it's just a ton of different information, um, technical, physical, um, safety, uh, explosives, uh, all the different kinds of ordnance. They, they split it up into types. So you got ground ordnance, air ordnance, um, demolitions, uh, reconnaissance on, uh, ordnance items to figure out what it is. So you know how to deal with it. Um, IEDs, chemical ordnance, nuclear ordnance. Um, you just go through each of these divisions and it's just nonstop. You have to pay attention. You need to study and you don't get many second chances if you, uh, if you fail something out. <clears throat> so I don't know what the attrition rate, you know, it, it changes, you know, with the need for EOD techs, but I think it hovers somewhere around 50% uh, for academics. When you graduate from this school and you look back on it, like, are you like, holy crap, I did it? Or you kind of felt like this was going to happen all along for you? No, I was, um, I was not, you know, sure that I was going to make it through. We had people dropping left and right. Um, so, you know, I did my best and me coming over from the Navy means I didn't have a previous army MOS. So I took a big chance doing it <clears throat> because if I did fail out, I would have been reclassed to an MOS according to the needs of the army, which at the time I believe is 88 Mike was probably what I would have gotten. Yeah. Truck driver would be a army truck driver. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that, that was extra motivation for me to pay attention. Um, the main schoolhouse is down in Eglin. So a lot of people struggled with, uh, you know, getting in trouble outside of school, you know, partying, um, down there on the beach, uh, you know, DUIs and, you know, just silly shenanigans or uh, get a lot of people kicked out down there. Yep. Um, you know, it's kind of the same that all the, all the really long schools, people get comfortable and they get, they get silly. Um, so I, I kept my head in the books and stayed focused. Uh, one thing that was very sombering for everybody is every time a EOD tech was lost downrange, they'd have a formation with the students in each of the, uh, divisions that you were in and they'd, you know, read the citation for what happened and, and tell us about, you know, kind of how the incident went down and, you know, reaffirm how serious the business that we're trying to get into is, um, which, which I appreciated that them, them keeping it, you know, real with us and letting us know how serious this was. And it's, it's going on downrange while we're in school training for it. Did any of that scare you? Uh, you know, 
thinking back, it, it really didn't. I was just, you know, concentrating on school and wanting to get done. Um, I can't explain to you why it didn't scare me. I'm not some kind of like super badass. <laughs> but uh, no, it didn't really scare me. It just kind of made me want to do better at school and pay more attention there. You know, when you go through those kind of memorial ceremonies, and I don't know if they set them up for you with the boots and the dog tags and everything else, um, but when they you... They didn't at the schoolhouse, they but did, they, they, they do otherwise everywhere else. Right, right. I just didn't know what they did at the schoolhouse. But, you know, it, it brings a somber reality to you that is hard to kind of put into words or put into context um, because life goes on so quickly in combat, you know, like it's just the next day. Uh, and you don't have a lot of time to pause and reflect on the loss or the emotion or the impact of, of what really happens until after you're out of that whole kind of arena, but you guys weren't in it yet. So I just, you know, no. I'm trying to put myself in that arena saying there had to be people in your class Did any of your buddies ever say, man, you know, this is, so this is real. You know, it's funny when you mentioned that. Um, every now and then, I remember there was one when I was in ground ordnance division, which is landmines, hand grenades, that sort of stuff, um, which is about the middle of the school. Um, so I was about six months in. Um, one of the guys downrange was killed, and it's a pretty tight, small community. I think there's roughly 4,000, you know, throughout the services that are active or something. Um, but uh, we actually had kids quit uh, at that at that particular one when they were – explaining to us how uh how the guy was killed and uh we, we had people right there go out and ring the bell and uh and drop out of the course right there really so you know different people take it differently wow now that's that that to me is surprising that they just dor dropped on request and rang the bell and went home yep right there um right after the that that, that almost seems like there. it would be more jarring than the news um, you, you know, sometimes, and I've heard about it from guys that have been through, you know, SFAS and other selections, um, it's kind of got a domino effect. Um, if one dude that you think is solid goes and rings out, you start to question yeah. yourself. Yeah. I mean, woof. that's a, that's a, that's a wake up call right there. Okay. So you get through EOD school. Uh, how quickly do you get to your next deployment? Uh, very quickly. Uh, like you said, we were short. And uh, I actually really wanted to go to Fort Carson, Colorado, looking at all the available posts for EOD technicians. Mm -hmm. And that was my top pick. And I actually got it, which is kind of funny because in the Army, the joke is you never get your top pick. Um, I actually got it. But the reason I got it was because uh, that was the closest to deploying unit next for Iraq. Um, so that, that unit, um, you know, looking back that I got to, it was a, an amazing EOD unit, like stacked with top performers. Um, so I was kind of spoiled on that first deployment because I didn't realize like how good I had it with the dudes I was surrounded with. Um, and everybody just pulled extra weight. Um, it was great. So I got there, I got to Fort Carson and, uh, I think, let's see, had about 10 months total, but we already knew we were deploying, uh, before we deployed. So I got there and there was only like three other dudes. Uh, from the unit, uh, because the unit was moving from Tuella, Utah, to Fort Carson, Colorado, right when I got out of EOD school. So the entire unit was basically dumped of personnel. They reflagged it here on Fort Carson, and then I had to help move the equipment from Utah out here, and then set up the unit from scratch, basically with all new personnel. All right, 
pretty large undertaking to say the least. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, being fresh out of school. Um, when I got pinned my EOD badge, the, uh, the guy I had pinned me was one of the instructors and, uh, you know, he whispered in my ear after he pinned me, he said, this means you're trainable as an EOD tech. It doesn't mean you know everything. So make sure when you get to your unit that you, uh, you find the knowledgeable dudes and start learning. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, the weird thing about your line of work, uh, and everybody in the military knows that even the civilians obviously know this. Uh, there's not a lot of room for error. You can't really learn on the job all that much. <laughs> uh, learning no. on the job can end, end, leave you dead. So how does that process go for you? So um, had really good uh, guys come in, like I said. Um, started off with just a couple of us and then uh, had dudes pile in finally like over the next six months basically until we had a full unit. Um, we had a very good first sergeant and a commander that really wanted to get everybody ready. So we focused 100% on training. We were doing night problems. We were coming in at night to train in the dark. We were training on the weekends sometimes. They were lining us up for all the schools that they could. So they, they took really good care of us, which is very much appreciated. Um, one of the bad things was the unit was short on seasoned EOD technicians. So there was two uh, team leader slots that were not filled. Um, are you aware of the composition of an EOD company? Vaguely, of, of yeah. Like the current one? So yeah. it's about 40, 40 men, uh, 40, 40 person. Right. Um, but at its basic, there's uh, there's nine operational teams, and then there's you know headquarters people and some maintenance guys and some some S one folks. Right, but stuff. the actual number of def- bomb diffusers are, are very small. Yep, nine teams for a company, and we usually support you know like a brigade combat team or something. So there's not a lot of us to go around. Um, so basically, we only had seven teams functional because of our lack of seasoned team leaders. Um, so the leadership in the unit got together and. Uh, they decided to pick some of the higher ranking dudes that were just out of school to, to fill those slots. Unfortunately and fortunately for me, it was uh, myself and one of my buddies I went through EOD school with. Um, so got thrown straight into a team leader slot, which both of us resisted uh, because we felt we weren't ready for it being just out of school. Um, and that's the most dangerous position on an Army EOD team is the, the team leader because they're the ones that make the manual approaches go down to all the, the dangerous stuff if they need to. Um, so myself and my uh, my friend Sean uh, ended up being the, the guys picked for that. So now we're in team leader slots, and the team members that we've been assigned to assist us uh, graduated school the same time as us. That bother you? Yeah, a little bit. Why? Um, you know, it's just I felt like I wasn't ready to run a team leader. I wanted to see team leaders run in the real world, um, kind of an on-the-job training, OJT kind of a deal. I, you know, while I'm assisting, um, since I'm brand new, I just didn't feel that I was ready for, you know, the big show. <laughs> okay. But I mean, don't, isn't, there, isn't there a party that embraces that whole, you know, uh, hey, they trust me enough to, to do this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, raise my game a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, it felt good that they felt, you know, after observing us in training, that we were the, the two that they wanted to pick, which means we were... We were doing things the right way, uh, if you will. Um, but, you know, there's always that little voice in the back of your head saying, you know, are you really good enough to do this? Because, you know, it's a, it's a cat and mouse game with, with the bombers that we're playing. Take me through your first experience downrange on a bomb. I've got, I've got two that stand out in my mind, if you don't okay. mind me talking about sure. that. Sure. 
so my very first one, they assigned a uh, a uh, seasoned team leader that was kind of a floater um, at the time to ride along with me, uh, to observe me and help me out, which which made me feel a little bit better about it. Um, he's actually one of the dudes from Hurt Locker fame. I'm not going to name him. Um, not not the team leader, the main guy, but uh, one of the team members. He was uh, on that team. Mm-hmm. And everybody loves making Hurt Locker jokes with the OD guys. So well, figured I'd throw that in there for can you. Can we just pause for one second? I thought that movie was total horse crap. Uh, yeah, it was It was pretty terrible. It was Hollywood crap. Like, none of that is actually how anything goes. It, it was very Hollywoodized. Yes. I sure. mean, it, just so people know, it's not, it's not a slight against Jeremy Renner or anything else or, or Anthony Mackie who – uh, no. seem, seem like fairly decent soldiers in 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 theory when they acted. It's just it had no basis in reality. It, it's not how EOD teams, EOD teams operate. It's never just one vehicle running out there with three dudes. It's just not how things go. Yep. Uh, in general, no. It, it, it was very very uh, took some liberties. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Most just, of us hate the movie. So yeah, I, I don't blame you. I, I I wasn't a fan of it either. I, the whole time I'm sitting here going, this is just complete crap. I mean, you know, there, there was nothing about it that had any basis in reality. So uh, moving on. Anyway, I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> no worries. Okay. All right. So uh, the the first incidents I ran as a team leader. Um. So the the first one I got was actually a post blast uh, incident. There was a a car bomb that had gone off on an Iraqi checkpoint. And uh, I was I was in the shoot for uh, on duty, so you know we suited up, got in our vehicle. We had a mandate um, if we were on call, we had to be ready within 30 minutes to roll out. And like you said, we usually don't go anywhere on our own, so we had to wait. Usually it was QRF that would escort us out to wherever we were going, um, not because we don't know how to get there, you know, just safety and numbers and all that. So my my team leader John came out with me. Um, I was running in the TC seat. He was up in the turret and he was kind of guiding me. And, uh, you know, once we get out on scene, um, we park, uh, the Jerv, um, you familiar with what the Jerv is? It's the EOD specific vehicle that we were running with in Iraq. Yes. Okay. I had the six wheel variant, which was kind of hard to run around. I was in a Northwest Baghdad and Sadr city for most of this deployment. So it was a little bit tight running around in that behemoth. Yeah. Um, but uh, and so just we, for we, those who don't know, Sadr City is as urban as you can get. It's like driving down New York City streets or any major metropolis streets uh, where turns are tight and there's not a lot of room between a lot of buildings, houses, and, and the roads aren't very wide. So just picture any military vehicle trying to navigate through that. That's what he's talking about. Why it makes it? Yeah, tough. my my vehicle was a six wheeled variant, twenty six tons, so not not fun to maneuver around. No. in Sadr, <laughs> bad turning range. Uh, Anyways, uh, so we park, and I, ha- I have the, the vehicle that had blown up um, in view out my window, and at that moment, I, I just kind of froze, um, and I, I really didn't know, like, I, all my training dumped, and, you know, a lot of you guys probably wouldn't want to admit that, but I just was staring at this smoking Hulk, and I completely forgot what I was supposed to be doing there. I was just like, holy shit, this is a surreal scene, you know, just a, a car blown to pieces, smoke everywhere, some stuff's on fire. And finally, uh, John came down out of the turret and, uh, you know, he was really good at, at being a, a good mentor. And he was like, Hey man, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like it's a post blast. So there's just an explosion happened. There's not much for me to, to really do here. And he's like, well, you got to get out of the vehicle sometime. And that, when he said that, it kind of like snapped me back in, you know, to reality. And uh, I went ahead and went through the, the process that we, we train for so often. 
Um, got out, talked to the uh, the infantry guys that were holding the cordon. Uh, talked to the the lieutenant on the ground there. Kind of got the story of what happened. Went ahead and uh, you know took my evidence photos. Um, you know set up some security for myself while I was out on the ground, dismounted, and uh, you know made sure everybody was safe in the area. And then did a did a secondary sweep to make sure no other you know like car bombs were in the area. And then uh, went back and started doing all my paperwork after that was done. So. That one was just like the initial shock of, holy shit, I'm here, and it's real. So the uh, the second one that really stands out um, was, have you heard of the uh, the IRAMs in Iraq? From, yes. Like the 2007 time frame? Mm-hmm. So they're, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, um, improvised rocket-assisted mortar is, is what those were named. Um, and what it basically was is uh, the enemy – had taken, you know, large acetylene tanks and oxygen tanks. They had uh, packed about 200, 220 pounds of C4 into these things, and they welded a 107 rocket motor onto the bottom of them to launch these giant bombs. They were were freaking huge. So I was fortunate enough to be on one of the three cops that got hit at the same time on the the morning of November, I want to say it was November 14th. 2007, mm-hmm. they used these IRAMs in a coordinated attack against three different cops and fobs in my area at the same time at like seven in the morning, all of them at the same time. So I was asleep in my rack. Um, again, I was on, on the duty cycle and uh, I started having dreams that we were being bombed and like the building was shaking and stuff. And I woke up out of my rack and realized it wasn't a dream. It was actually happening. So they launched eight of those IRAMs on my specific cop that I was on, which was Cop Callahan, which was a three-story mall that we were living in with the 82nd Airborne. Um, is who, that's who we were supporting at the time. Uh, it was the White Falcons um, was the, the unit that we were, we were supporting. Anyways, um, so these uh, eight 250, 220-pound bombs went off in our uh, motor pool around our building. Um, so, you know, we woke up, started getting ready. Everybody's yelling in the building and, uh, whole building shaking, felt like it was going to come down. Um, cause that was a lot of ordnance in a very small area. Um, once I got dressed and kitted out, I kind of came to the realization that there's not much I can do right then. So, uh, kind of sat down and wait, waited for, uh, for things to calm down and then figure out what was going on. So, uh, once we figured out, um, you know, we're kind of, done being attacked by large explosives um we went ahead and headed down to the talk and uh discussed what was going on you know they had some video of the uh, projectiles flying over our wall landing in the motor pool and blowing up flipping humvees and disintegrating two walls um since i was on duty i was assigned to uh to roll out with my team and um assess the uh the truck that had launched the uh the rockets at us so i got my team ready and this vehicle was only parked about I'd say 200 meters outside of our, uh, out of our fob. So it was pretty close. Those initial, uh, IRAMs were packed so heavy that the rocket motors didn't get them very far. Um, later designs, they had, uh, reduced the payload and they got the rockets to go a lot farther. Um, anyways, so I got all to the truck and uh, a cordon was set up by the 82nd guys and, uh, around this truck, um, securing the area, getting all the civilians out of the way. And the truck had already started to catch fire from the the rockets launching out of it. Um, So I went ahead and set my robot down and uh, 
did an assessment on it, decided there was no like secondary IDs in the vehicle or the cab meant to get anybody looking at the vehicle. And I was able to pull a giant like plywood box with wires coming out of it, out of the cab, um, which was very fortunate that I was able to do that before the entire truck went up in flames because that box held uh, 16 cell phones that they used to launch all of those rockets over the wall remotely. Oh, wow. Um, and we were able to, you know, use that to get evidence off those phones and, you know, the stuff that we do with that. Um, so I was happy I was able to get that out before the, uh, before that truck went up cause it completely burned up in the next hour. Um, my other teams that I was with at cop Callan at the time got assigned to, uh, go clean up the mess and make sure no ordinance was left, like in the motor pool and everything. And it was just like complete devastation. Um, there was Humvees flipped. There was a four wheeled, uh, ASV, I think is what they're called. It's the uh, armored gun truck that the uh, MPs sometimes get with a turret on top. One of those had completely burned down. The uh, armored glass on it had melted out and everything, and a bunch of the 40-millimeter grenades inside of it had started, you know, lighting off from being on fire. Uh, The ASP had scattered ammo everywhere. Um, Like, so it was a total mess and a shit show. So after I was done clearing that vehicle and everything i came out and started helping with the effort to clean up the motor pool and everything and we started collecting evidence of uh what these rockets were you know we started finding pieces of the rockets um pieces of the fusing that they had made and uh started putting the pieces of the puzzle together on on how this was done and and what it was so that that was the other one that was like my intro you know to eod that was uh one that really stood out and that was my second week in theater (laughs) of a 15-month deployment Oh, wow. All right. So that deployment otherwise ends pretty uneventful, yes? I mean, as uh, far as, you know, incidents and, and everything else. Unfortunately, no. Um, we had uh, one of our really seasoned platoon sergeants was uh, killed on that deployment about halfway in, uh, summer of 2008. What happened? So, well, uh, he was, you know, out working with his team and uh, got a call that, uh, Usually we get fragged out. We're not always with the headquarters. He was out by himself with his, his two guys. Um, he got called out that a, a local shake um, had a bad guy drop a, you know, a bomb off on his front porch. And then that dude's son had uh, picked up the bomb and moved it to an alleyway, uh, which happened to be full of trash. So um, they were on scene for a while searching for this supposed bomb. They couldn't get a very good description through the uh, translator, as far as I understand. And uh, so he ended up, couldn't find the bomb with his robot, ended up deciding to make a manual approach, uh, which means, you know, dismounted walking, looking with his eyeballs. Um, he was looking around in that alleyway uh, around all the trash, and he accidentally jarred the package, and it detonated uh, right next to him. Oh, wow. So, he was killed by uh, shrapnel and overpressure. All right. So kind of compare this to or go back to when you were in EOD school and you hear the stories of guys who were killed and fast forward to what just happened to a guy in your unit. Thoughts, feelings, emotions. How do you reconcile that and bridge the gap? So... um out of our nine teams in my company, uh, him and I were the only two at the time that were outside the wire working issues. Um, you know, our talk keeps track of who's out, who's in, you know, where we are, what we're doing because we're all remoted. Um, so I was out working and he was out working. So he was killed while I was out working another IED in a different area. 
with my first sergeant riding along because, you know, first sergeant would make his rounds and hang out with teams and make sure everybody's doing good. You know, he'd travel around. He was actually with me. So, um, you know, I wrapped up my IED, which was an EFP on the side of the road, uh, command wire variant. Um, Those ended are fun. up being able to, to successfully uh, disarm that one and bring a bunch of evidence back. But we got back to our small cop with uh, 122 Infantry is who I was supporting at that time. No, not 122. I'm sorry. That was Afghanistan. 168 in uh, 168 out of Fort Carson, 4th ID. Um, I was with those guys embedded, and uh, you know, I got back and I had kind of made some friendships and re- some relationships with those guys. Haven't been out there by myself with them. And uh, one of the dudes from the top came up to me as soon as we rolled back in. He's like, had a really bad look on his face, and he's like, "Hey, man, uh, there's a phone call in the talk for your first sergeant." And my heart immediately sunk because it just something about his demeanor, like told me it was really bad news like serious bad news so i went and told my first sergeant i was like hey there's a phone call for me in the talk i think it's something bad so i went ahead and uh went back to my team we started refitting our gear you know fueling the truck making sure weapons were good all that kind of stuff while he went and took care of the phone call um after that we went to our little uh our little shack we were living in and uh kind of just waited around uh for the first sergeant to get back uh, so he came back in and had a really, uh, really down look on his face. He sat down and, uh, you know, broke the news to us. Um, you know, you were, you were talking about bringing it back to, you know, the schoolhouse versus now. Um, this one, this one hit me like a ton of bricks because uh, this dude was a sergeant first class at the time. I was a new staff sergeant, and uh, the guy that was killed had mentored me uh, through a lot of the training we did working up for this deployment. So that one really uh, just like stunned everybody. Cause he was one of the guys that everybody like looked to on how to do this job successfully and like get through it. And uh, since he was killed, we were all like, Holy shit, if he can be killed, you know, all of us are pretty much done. You know, it was, it was pretty heavy. Wow. Uh, how does that deployment end? Um, you know, the rest of the deployment uh, had some, you know, being a 15 monther, uh, I did three months initially and I was the first rotation on leave. So because I had a, a new daughter that had arrived. Um, so I went out for her being born and then went back to Iraq and I did 12 months straight. Um, so a bit stressful um, at that time, uh, 07, uh, November 07 to January 09 was the complete 15 months that we did on that tour. And, uh, like I said, we were in Sauter city, Northwest Baghdad in that area is what we were covering. Um, so during that time was a surge. So pretty stressful. Um, a lot of work. Uh, we took care of a lot of IEDs. We had a lot of successes, um, with the exception of, uh, Dave Azell having been killed. So overall a, a pretty good deployment. Um, I feel really good about the work we did and that's exactly why I wanted to get into the career field was to, I felt like I could put in more work than what I was doing when I was in the Navy. And I, I think we did, we did some good things there for, for everybody. All right. So your next deployment is to Afghanistan, right? Yep. And what, what time frame is this? So that was, uh, 2010. Okay. And this is your final deployment as well. Yep. Yep. Right. My final deployment. So how did you end up, uh, becoming injured? Give me the story. All right, so a little backstory on that one um, without getting too long onto it. Um, 
I was uh, fragged out again. I was more of a seasoned team leader at this time. Um, had some uh, some interesting operations. And if I if I could caveat, I think it was a little bit different in Afghanistan than it was in Iraq. But going into Afghanistan, I thought it would be the same. I thought I thought it would be the exact same as Iraq was, and it it actually was not. the uh, The tactics, um, the infrastructure for us. Uh, the way we were fighting the war was uh, a little bit different. Um, I did a lot more dismounted operations in Afghanistan than I did in Iraq. Uh, Iraq was mostly mounted, always in the truck, you know, on the roads, and it was like the complete opposite in Afghanistan. So that was that was a bit different dealing with that. Um, so so back to the incident where I got injured. Uh, dog handlers were uh, co-housed with us um, on. Uh, and cop is the place we were hanging out in at that time. And uh, their dogs weren't trained on the, uh, the explosives that the enemy was using in that area. Um, so they asked me if I could get them a sample for their dogs so they could train them, which made sense because that's what the enemy was using. So I told them I'd get them a sample if I could do so safely. Um, turns out a couple of weeks after they asked me that, a uh, infantry patrol was out all night and... Uh, they had come across some local Afghan police that said they had caught a guy in placing a bomb. He got away, and then they, he had left his tools and his explosives there. So the infantry guys, while they were out on patrol, they went over, found the, uh, the jug of homemade explosives, and they had moved it out of where it was over to an alleyway until I could get there. So I get out on scene. And uh, the infantry guys are kind of tired from being out all night. They asked me if I could just chuck it in my truck so they could get back to their uh, their hooches for chow and a shower, which is completely understandable. Um, but I took a look at it through my optic and decided it was not the best idea for me to do that. So I informed them that I was going to have to uh, take a little bit more time and uh, make sure things were safe. At that point, I figured out that it was just a uh, homemade explosives jug. Um, looking at it through my optic and then sending my robot down and looking at it. It was just a jug of explosives with uh, two blasting cap wires coming out of the lid. So what I decided was that it was a partial emplacement that was interrupted. Um, so it was just the main charge. So this may be my best option to get that sample for those dog handlers. So I kind of did some things that I normally wouldn't have done as a bomb technician uh, with this particular device. I had my, uh, my robot operator uh, roll, the, roll the device around. Um, on all the axes to try to make sure that there was no tilt switches or any sort of booby traps inside of it. You know, gave it a good inspection. After that, I decided it was, this is probably a good chance for me to get that, uh, that sample for those guys. So I had him start dragging the jug out into the street so I didn't have to walk down an alley to get to it. And uh, unfortunately, that's where we ran into a little bit of a snag. The uh, robot was passing like uh, a little construction ditch and the uh, jug fell out of the grippers and into that ditch, which was too narrow and steep for me to get my robot into. So looking at all of the, uh, all of the surrounding factors in it, I decided that it was a, uh, it was okay for me to make a manual approach, you know, dismount and walk down and look at it. So I got out of my truck. Well, hang on, hang on a second. Let me, let me just interrupt you and ask you, take me sure. through that decision process. Like what? There has to be steps in whether you decide to make a manual approach versus, you know, not doing it. What was the decision point that said, okay, I can get there? 
Yeah, absolutely. There is a there is a decision process, and everybody runs their teams differently. But the way I ran my team is I would look at a problem, gather all the information around it, and then I would kind of come up with a general idea on a course of action, and then I'd present it to my team and get their input on it. You know, uh, three minds on a problem are better than you know just mine. So I'd come to my guys and be like, "Hey, this is what we've got. This is what I'm thinking about doing. What are your thoughts on it?" So I had decided um, to skip over uh, EOD-wise. We kind of approach an IED problem because it's an unknown, as though it has every trigger known to man on it. And then using logic, we could try to uh, eliminate eliminate that there is this trigger or that trigger, you know, a timer, or, you know, whatever, or a tilt switch or any sort of other thing on it. Um, so I, I went through that process without revealing, you know, too much on that. Um, and decided that I was pretty good to go to approach. Um, there were some weird things on the ground. I had a, a half a cordon on my side. Um, the Afghans were holding the other side of the cordon on the opposite side of where I was uh, from the device. And unfortunately, they don't hold a very good cordon. Uh, so I had some, you know, kids in the area that we couldn't get to go away. Um, so it was just kind of a kind of a shit show, if you will. Um, so after you know going through the process of elimination, the uh, the the device had already been moved by several people. It had been sitting there for a while, so you know we were able to eliminate that there was a timer, um, able to reasonably eliminate that there was you know a, a, a trembler switch or something like that inside of it. And uh, I wanted to get that sample for those dog handlers because they were still being sent out on a mission, and if their dogs couldn't smell the stuff, eventually they were going to have a bad day. Okay. Um, so process of elimination decided it was, it was safe enough for me to, to go down and check out the uh, the device manually. So I kept my uh, robot on the scene so my team members could watch me through the camera. Um, I had them follow me down in the truck at a little bit of a distance, um, and I made the manual approach. whole time I'm stealing kids away uh, because the Afghan side was letting people through still for some reason, and I couldn't get my guys around to staunch the flow on that. We didn't have enough personnel. So I make it down to the uh, the device in the ditch. Um, you know, I give it a visual inspection and a once over, <clears throat> and it it looked okay enough for me to uh, to cut into. So I went ahead and cut the side of the jug out um, where the label was um, with some shallow cuts of my uh, my pocket knife, and that's where I ran into my second snag. Um, usually these explosives are in a very granular powder form, and they're very easy to collect a sample of. Normally, I would uh, blow in place something like this and just get rid of it. But since I had that cordon, I couldn't guarantee that I wasn't going to wound any kids. So I decided on a backup option of after collecting my sample, I was going to dilute the explosives in water, which would basically make the ammonium nitrate go away and just leave the aluminum powder, which is inert by itself. Um, so that was going to be my plan for getting rid of the rest after I got the sample for the dog handlers. Um, once I got the entire jug cut open, um, the internal contents were rock solid like concrete, which was which was unusual from what I had seen previous. Um, at the bottom of the jug, there was a little crack uh, in the explosives, so I decided that I was going to break the sample off with my pry bar on that, and then continue to either dilute the jug or move the next the rest of it back out until I can do a demolition day and blow it up with other ordnance that had been stored. 
at that point, as soon I was standing in the ditch and I had that uh, jug up on the, uh, the ledge, uh, basically at like chest height, and I was holding it in my left hand and I was using my pry bar in my right hand, and uh, I went for that crack, and as soon as I touched that crack with my pry bar, the uh, item lowered in my hands. Um, so a loader detonation is when some sort of explosive doesn't completely explode. Um, it basically just conflagrates and burns. And then some of it will like, kick out instead of exploding. Um, so it, it probably wasn't mixed well, the explosives, or it was old and it had some moisture in it. So I got super lucky. So I was holding seven pounds of explosives uh, approximately in that jug, and about a half a pound is actually what detonated. All right. So is somebody in your ear watching you do this the whole time, like coaching you through it, or at least giving you a second set of eyes? No. Uh, once I was out on the ground, um, I did not have, I had my team members watching me through the robot Okay. just to keep an eye on it. And I had them keeping notes on every step I was taking, you know, with timelines and stuff for reporting. Um, but I, I'd, at that point it was me on my own right there uh you know with my team members watching me at a at a at a distance nothing you saw in retrospect should have tipped you off um because i had imagined you, you've played this scenario in your head a thousand so, times as everybody knows and says hindsight is twenty twenty. um there, there were a, a few minute identifiers on the jug that i should have paid a little bit more attention to um but i, I didn't catch in the moment um so, you know, like you said, a little room for air. Uh, what ended up being inside that device, and this was this was a come-along meant to target EOD tech specifically, but it wasn't targeting me because I had never done anything like what I was doing here before. Um, so they couldn't have known to booby-trap it in this way to get me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a uh, what we call a, a syringe tilt switch, um, which was a syringe hidden inside of the explosives. Uh, with stacked watch batteries in the bottom of it. They had a ball bearing inside, and they had uh, wires coming through the side of the syringe at the top of the batteries. So when the ball fell, it touched the wire and the battery at the same time, closing the circuit and allowing the uh, electricity to flow through the blasting cap and go off. Now, the reason that I think, because <clears throat> no post-blast was done on my incident because I was the only EOD team in that area, uh, so nobody came out to look at the evidence and see what actually happened. So this is just my best guess with what I know of that area and, and what happened in the aftermath is that when they put the explosives in the jug, it dried and expanded inside the jug when it did pinching that uh, tilt switch to where the ball couldn't drop with all the other people that had moved it. And my robot had moved it, uh, you know, as safety precautions. But once I hit that little crack in the bottom, it relieved enough of the pressure on the tube to allow the ball to drop the rest of the way. <clears throat> does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm, 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 are you angry that you didn't catch it? Uh, no, there's, there's really no point in me being angry. It's just kind of, you know, how the job goes. Um, I would say that was about my hundredth IED uh, for my career that I had disarmed. Um, you know, and everything's different. Like I said earlier, it's a cat and mouse game with these guys. And I think I was trying to do the right things for the right reasons. You know, everybody has different opinions on my actions on that one and how they would have done things different, but you know, they weren't there. So. 
All right, Mike. So take me through your medevac. What happens after the IED detonates? And when do you start to realize that, oh, man, this is this is bad. I'm in a bad spot right here. Um, yeah, that was uh, it. Obviously, it was a, a surprise when that happened. Um, so it, it detonated in my hand. Um, I was holding it in my left hand. And then uh, I was using uh, that tool I described uh, like a pry bar, pry bar knife. And uh, that had gone through my right forearm. The whole bar? Course, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so it, it took the whole whole chunk off. And I had some – time kind of slowed down, so that was interesting. Um, you know, after the experience and after I survived, looking back on it, just uh, thinking about what I remembered from it and, and how surreal everything was. Um, so there's a huge cloud of dust. I got kicked to the uh, wall of the ditch I was standing in, and then uh, – it's kind of like the Saving Private Ryan scene from uh, when they land on the beach and an explosion goes off near him. Everything was slow motion. Uh, I couldn't hear anything. Um, I, I looked down after I was uh, regaining a little bit of my uh, my brain function, and um, I saw my uh, the hole in my arm first, and that's when I uh, remarked to myself how white bone was. And uh, I think that was a, a weird thing to think about in, in that situation, um, just thinking to myself how white that was. Um, and then I noticed it was an arterial bleed um, spraying across me uh, from that wound. So then I reached down to uh, try to get my uh, my tourniquet to do some self-aid. And that's when I realized that my left hand was also messed up. Um, you know, my thumb was hanging by a flap of skin and I was missing some fingers. Um, so I couldn't get to uh, my tourniquet. Luckily for me, my uh, my senior team member, Dave, had come out. Um, he yelled if I was okay. I, I told him I was pretty fucked up. Um, so he, he came in, into the cloud and pulled me out of the ditch. And then he, uh, he started buddy walking me back to the, uh, the nearest security vehicle, which is probably about, uh, 50, 60, 70 meters, maybe. Um, so I remember walking with him. I had my, uh, my left arm draped over his shoulder and he was, he was helping kind of drag me on my feet. And uh, the next surreal thing that I remember is uh, my right arm was kind of swinging in front of me, the one with the arterial bleed. And it was uh, spraying uh, blood across my boots as I was trying to walk. So finally gets me back to the uh, back to the area with the, the next security vehicle, and I kind of collapsed and fell over. And that's when uh, he started doing first aid on me. Um, he was able to get a tourniquet on me. And when he put the tourniquet on my right arm, uh, it stopped my arterial bleed. But that's when I kind of snapped out of the daze I was in, if you will. Um, and I, I looked up at him and I was like, hey, man, that really hurts. And then he apologized to me and said, yeah, I know it does, buddy, but I have to uh, I have to do it to save your life. So he, he got that done. And then. Uh, but when you hear that, started... did it freak you out? N- no, I, I was still, you know, probably in shock and everything. So I didn't really fully digest the situation until I was on the medevac bird a little bit later. Um, it was just kind of like sitting there in a daze still. Um, and then, you know, he thought he started packing my wound on my arm and everything after putting the tourniquet on, stopping the blood flow. And then he started asking me questions about what I was doing and what happened, you know, information, you know, for the follow on report. And he didn't realize that my left hand was also wounded. Um, so, Kind of a funny part, you know, for us with this kind of sense of humor. I put my hand up in front of his face and I said, hey, man, can you go find my fingers? And he went, oh, shit, because uh, he didn't realize that that one was messed up because he was so focused on the arterial bleed and the, the damage to my right arm. So then he put the tourniquet on my, my left arm, you know, packaged my left hand up 
uh, with some bandages and stuff. And then he, uh, he went back down range where the detonation had occurred. Um, cause I told him I had left my, uh, my rifle. I asked him to get that for me and I, I gave him a quick synopsis of what happened up to the detonation. Um, he went, he went down, uh, did a, a, a sweep looking for, uh, my fingers. Like I asked him to, um, he came back pretty quick, um, while I was being loaded into the back of an MRAP, uh, for ground evac back to the base, which was somewhat close by. And, uh, he, he comes back and, uh, at this point kind of realize I'm going to, I'm going to make it at least in the short term. So he's joking around and, uh, he, uh, dropped my watch in my pocket and said, Hey man, sorry, I couldn't find your fingers. I got you a, uh, consolation prize. Your, your watch is the only thing I could find. <laughs> so he got me, uh, it was a Sunto watch that the unit had, uh, issued me before that deployment, which were pretty valuable to us, uh, in the unit. So he put that in my pocket, said, here's your consolation prize. And, and the thing was still ticking, which was a funny thing to note as well with everything else going on. So at that point, he went back to our truck, which was sitting right next to where the detonation was, grabbed our other team member and uh, got the got everything cleaned up and ready to head back to the base while I got medevaced back in that MRAP. They ground evac'd me back, and I find it pretty remarkable that I didn't get knocked out uh, the whole time with everything that I had experienced, but uh was conscious all the way up until got on the bird, and they gave me some morphine. But uh, in the medevac, uh, on the way back, um, in the medical station while we're waiting for the bird to come in, which took about 20, 25 minutes to come pick me up from, uh, ANCOP, which is the base we were on. Um, the, uh, the medics kind of had a hard time with me because I was conscious and, uh, they were trying to cut stuff off of me and I was yelling at them that they didn't need to do that. Cause I was conscious and, you know, I was probably, uh, being more difficult than I needed to be, um, considering the situation and they were just trying to do their jobs. But then the, uh, the bird finally got in there and they, they took me out, uh, put me in the bird. Um, they gave me some, some meds. So after we took off, I was a little cold, um, uh, probably from a combination of blood loss and lack of clothing with the doors open. Um, so I remember shivering a lot and being really cold. They, uh, they put some sort of a heater on me and then, uh, gave me that shot of painkiller and then I passed out. So that was, that was that day. Wow. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the recovery portion of this a little bit because sometimes that's worse than the you know the blast and the trauma and everything else that goes with it. Um, how long was the recovery period, and what was the experience like? What were the toughest parts of it for you? I'd say it was. I, I kind of in in my mind, like internalizing it, I break it down kind of into phases. So um, immediately after, um, you know, I, I was knocked out. Once I was in my uh, helicopter being medevaced back to uh, CAF for some emergency surgeries and stuff, um, I woke up in the, the hospital there. They'd done a bunch of surgeries. I gotten I had gotten eight liters, eight units of blood um, during those surgeries and stuff to keep me alive. Um, and then they moved me. They needed a better, I guess a better surgeon was at Bath, which I had never actually been to um, since we were assigned to Task Force South. Um, so they'd moved me again by air over to Bath, and they had done some more emergency surgeries. Um, and then a good friend of mine that had, uh, had kind of mentored me when I was a younger EOD technician, when I first got into the field out of the schoolhouse, um, actually was there at the same time in a different unit. And he was able to come over and, uh, see me. Um, that was one thing that really stuck out to me 
like throughout the entire process, every step of the way, there was a, a senior EOD technician of some sort that I, most of them I had known previous, a couple of them I hadn't, um, that met me and, you know, brought me some food or just, you know, comfort in reading me a book while I was, you know, sitting in my hospital room. So that was something that really stood out to me about the community is every step of the way I had somebody there from the EOD community to uh, see if I needed anything to get messages to my wife. And it, it really was very helpful in dealing with everything. But going back to uh, to Bath, um, once that was done, I, was, I think I was there for three days, but it's kind of a blur from all the uh, painkillers and the sleep. Um, they went ahead and medevaced me to Germany. And I stayed in Germany for about a week. And, and that one is almost a complete blank other than a uh, local starting first class there, bringing, sneaking me in some donor kebabs into the room, even though they uh, probably weren't supposed to. But he hooked me up with some really good local food. And uh, that really, those little things make a total difference in your mood. You know, everything's going on, you're, you're messed up. And uh, you have somebody that cares enough, even though they don't know you, to, uh, you know, bring you some food and just a little comfort. Um, he went out and they had a budget there. Um, so he bought me some clothes because I got medevaced, obviously, without any of my stuff. So he went to the local PX and uh, brought me some clothes, uh, you know, like a hoodie and some some comfortable stuff to wear around the hospital. At this point, I could walk around a little bit, um, still in a daze, but uh, I was able to start moving. And then they medevaced me from there overseas back to Maryland. And I had uh, I had to argue with the doctors. They wanted to send me to Walter Reed. But I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and I knew that uh, Brook Army Medical Center, also known as Bamsey, was there. And that was one of the two places where they always sent um, very injured guys for, for their recovery phase. The doctors were trying to send me to Walter Reed, which is in D.C., but I had, uh, you know, my father and his home um, were in Texas. So I had probably about a 30-minute argument with the doctor about his orders to send me to Walter Reed, and uh, I was able to win. I don't know how. Um, but I was able to win and, uh, get, get my orders changed to go to Bamsey. So stop over in Maryland. Uh, my former platoon leader from, uh, from my first deployment in the 62nd in Iraq that I had described, um, showed up and fed me some pizza, you know, joked around a little bit. And, uh, that was a bit of a drive from where she was in Virginia, but she took the time to come up there and, uh, see me, bring me some pizza, hang out, make sure I was okay. So she could communicate with my wife. Um, so that, that was great. And then, uh, after I think two days of that stopover in Maryland, they finally got me that last flight to get me down to Bamsey. Um, and that's where my, uh, once I arrived there, they immediately got me over to Brook Army Medical Center into the emergency room. And that, that was kind of how I break it down. That was like the first phase was all the traveling, getting back. And that flight from, uh, Germany to Maryland was probably the worst flight of my life. Just uh, being stacked like cordwood with a bunch of other uh, wounded guys in various conditions. Um, I had a cot. There was just so many guys on that plane. I had a cot above and below me with a guy with maybe 12 inches of space between each of us. Um, so it, it was very uncomfortable of a ride. Um, so that, like I said, that's kind of the first phase. The way I break it down is uh, the, the transportation back after having been wounded. And then uh, I got to my... My final destination at Brook Army Medical Center. Um, have you heard of the CFI, the Center for the Intrepid? I think so. Refresh my memory. So Center for the Intrepid um, is just an amazing facility um, down there at Brook Army Medical Center at Bamsey. And uh, it's where all the really bad 
burn victims and amputees go to do their recovery. So I spent my first 30 days in the hospital, um, actually in the emergency room under intensive care, um, taking care of all my wounds. And, and I had a, uh, one of those weird wound vacuums hooked up to my arm with a sponge filling the giant hole. And, uh, that was just kind of a groundhog's day thing where, you know, I had nurses checking in on me five times a day, um, taking blood samples, taking medications and just kind of laying in my bed, not doing much. At this point, my wife was able to, to get down from Colorado and she was staying in my dad's house. Um, so that was very nice that she had an actual place to stay. That wasn't like a sterile hotel room, but, uh, that hospital phase where I was there, um, it was just basically leveling everything out, um, getting paperwork done. And it was just a blur of that kind of stuff. After that 30 days was up is when I got moved over to the CFI, um, center for the intrepid. And that's where the next, I'd say 10, 11 months was my, uh, my recovery there before I got moved back up to Carson, um, PCS for me to start my process of getting retired out of the military medically. So the CFI was just staffed with the most amazing, like caring people. Um, they had specialists in there that would make custom prosthetics. Um, they had the people in there with the prosthetics that would do the physical therapy and get you used to your prosthetic and get you walking or, you know, whatever you needed. But they had, it was just a giant bay lined up with all sorts of guys from all four branches, you know, missing limbs and with horrific burns and stuff on them. And I almost felt like I, uh, I didn't deserve to be in there and getting the care I was because my wounds were so minor compared to some of the other guys. Um, one of the guys that did his, his, um, physical therapy next to me was a triple amputee. And it, it was nice to see, like he had such a positive outlook, even though he's missing three limbs, he just had his left arm. I want to say if I can remember correctly. Um, but he was missing both legs above the knee and his, his right arm above the elbow. And this guy was out getting after it, Mark. I mean, he was he was off bull riding, uh, trying to do bull riding and, uh, you know, bronco busting and just kayaking and fishing and just trying to get out there and live his life. And that, that was a very positive thing to be sitting next to that dude. And he has such a cheery outlook on everything. And he's like, man, we'll, we'll get through this. You know, we chat in between, you know, talking with our doctors and stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, we'll do all right. And that was just such a positive thing seeing those guys just working through the pain and uh, beginning to walk again with their, with their prosthetics and just putting in the work and having a positive outlook still, I guess is what I wanted to talk about there. No, I, I think that's, you know, that's all important stuff, obviously. I mean, uh, that's part of what we're giving back to, you know, a lot of people who listen to this is that uh, things are bad for certain people, but, there's always somebody who's got it worse and, and perception and outlook and everything are, are huge parts of everybody's recovery. But, you know, again, it's, it's just a reminder to everybody else out there that, um, you know, uh, that there is a, there's a future for everybody. Right. And it just kind of depends on how you want to look to get there. Absolutely. Outlook, outlook is accounted for so much in you know, how you deal with things. Um, one of the nicest things I can't say the nice enough stuff about the the staff there, but uh, before this, I hadn't realized that um, recreational therapy was even like a job line. And we each got assigned at the CFI got assigned a recreational therapist, and they would work with each individual person to see what sort of activities that you like to do before you're injured, and like try to get you back into that stuff. 
Um, so mine was, I, I'm, I'm big into to firearms and shooting, um, obviously while being safe with it, but they, they had a challenge in me since my arms and hands were messed up. Um, they actually had their, uh, their people that make prosthetics, make me a special prosthetic to hold a handgun again for me to shoot because my, my right arm, which I'm right-handed from my forearm injury was completely messed up. It was, it was kind of locked up with atrophy and everything else and I couldn't use it. So they had made the prosthetic for my left hand with a kind of a grip thing where my missing fingers were to hold the gun and my left pointer finger and my thumb, which I had left were still strong enough to pull a trigger. So they went through all this trouble just to get a handgun in me and they took me into the, uh, you know what the EST is the, uh, the simulation trainer for the guns. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they brought me into their EST there and they put a, a, a air gun Beretta basically into that thing and had me shoot a little bit and figured out that I could actually still do it. Um, so they, they got me right back into some of the stuff that I wanted to do right away. They took me on some kayaking, which I was worried about being able to, you know, hold an oar with enough strength to move myself around the way I needed to. And there were some mishaps where, you know, on the river, I got rolled over by running into some branches and, Fortunately, it was only, you know, four feet deep in that section, so nothing too crazy happened other than me getting wet and having my, my pride hurt a little bit. But they they did a really great job of getting us back into the world and just getting us into activities to – and it really was a lot more helpful than I would have thought it would have been, you know, prior to experiencing this. So even after uh, after my recovery, um, like I mentioned earlier, I got, I got moved back up to uh, Fort Carson – to go ahead and do my out processing for, for retirement. And throughout my recovery in that, uh, that retirement process, I, I'll say that there's two nonprofits that really, really helped me out. One of them was there from the beginning and that's uh, a pretty prominent one. That's the wounded DOD warrior foundation. And every step of the way they had people in touch with me and my wife and just taking care of anything we needed that they could help with. Um, I had been on some trips with them, as well to do some of the kind of the recreational therapy thing, like continuing. Um, but they, they've been nothing but great to me. And then, uh, as I had mentioned previous, I just finished doing some hyperbaric oxygen therapy for, um, treating the symptoms of some TBI, um, having some issues sleeping and stuff. And that was the, the Invictus project, um, with Jam, Jeff and Sam were able to, uh, get me in for that and take care of me. And I actually saw some good results there with my uh, sleep. That's pretty amazing and awesome to hear. Good for you. All right. So the deployment you were injured on was a pretty rough one, not only for you, obviously, because, you know, I mean, you had a hole in your arm and you were missing fingers and whatnot, but, you know, the entire EOD community as a whole um, and your unit specifically took some losses. Like, I, I mean, Anytime you lose a guy, obviously it's tough, but what made these losses, I guess, more impactful, if that's the way to say it, uh, as opposed to something that happens on other deployments? Um, I, I think part of it was just, uh, I don't know how to word this, um, just over the years, because we've been at war by this point it, a little over nine years, and it, it's just on the community as a whole have taken losses pretty regularly, you know, in cycles in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think it just kind of built up in everybody in uh, that year, 2010 specifically, um, if I recall correctly, up to that point was the year where the most EOD technicians were put on the memorial wall um, that, that 2010 year. 
um, during the surge in Afghanistan. Um, so it, it was the volume for one is because uh, it being a small community in itself um, with all of us being pretty close, just the amount, um, almost everybody in the community was touched by somebody they knew personally being, having been killed. Um, I can't remember the total number, but between all four branches, it was something like 13 EOD technicians were put on the wall that year. Um, so that was pretty rough. Um, my unit in specific, uh, where we were in Kandahar for that surge, um, first couple of months in, we had already had two team members, uh, wounded um one of them bad enough to be medevaced out and then uh within the first three months we had a uh, one of our team leaders um get killed his name is matt west um on in august of 2010 and we got in country in i want to say june that that's a little fuzzy it was sometime in the uh summer but it was within the first couple months of us having been there um matt was killed he was he was catching a ride with some uh a log pack basically um to get to a uh, a place where he was going to be working out of and uh his truck was waiting for him there that's why he didn't have his own to bring um and he was riding he was just catching a seat he was happened to be in the first vehicle along with uh that unit's chaplain which was i want to say the first chaplain killed since like vietnam in, in combat he was wow. uh, a major and that so that was a big deal because um that truck was the one of the only ones with some open seats for riders and the chaplain was riding out in that same vehicle. And then, uh, you know, Matt was in that vehicle and then, uh, they were moving along at that point. I was the, uh, operations sergeant for the, for the unit. Um, so we were at the talk with the headquarters, um, of the unit we were supporting, which was fourth ID at the time. And, uh, we were able to see it on the, uh, the aerostat. Um, I, I came into the talk after the detonation had happened and saw that the, uh, the camera was focused on a giant smoking hole, basically. Um, but up until I think about 45 minutes after I had first seen what they were looking at, I didn't realize that Matt was in that vehicle. Um, fortunately for his team members, um, I guess that's probably not the right way to put it because they experienced a terrible thing in losing Matt, but they were a couple vehicles back in some other open seats. Um, so those guys really, uh, they had to step up being more junior guys and they, they moved forward and, uh, did the post blast analysis, made sure the scene was clear for the, the rest of the vehicles to get out. Um, which is a, a pretty heavy thing to have to do in that, that moment. You know, you just watched your, uh, your team leader and an entire vehicle full of, uh, your, your fellow Americans go up and, uh, they, they moved forward, made sure it was clear for everybody else. Um, turned out to be a, a command wire IED on that particular one that was, uh, targeting the, the first vehicle. And I want to say it was somewhere in the area of 200 pounds of explosives. So uh, the different thing about that one, um, since we had lost uh, Dave Azell in our last deployment out of that unit, which was the, the 62nd, um, was when Dave was lost, um, we had time and we had enough other units in the area that kind of covered down in our AO while we went back for the memorial. And we were able to, uh, you know, get a little bit of downtime to process things and everything. That wasn't able to happen this time. Um, there wasn't enough other EOD technicians in the area um, to kind of cover down on our AOs and give us a little break uh, for us to regather ourselves. We just had to continue with the mission uh, that, you know, from th that point on, we didn't have really time to process it. Yeah, and that's always tough. You know, I think that when it comes to um, 
you know, the loss of, of guys, everybody deals with it differently, you know, because there's such an, a sense of urgency to, to get back into the fight. Um, and you talk about the, the lack of ability to process it. It boils back up. That's the problem. It, it comes back at some future point. It always does. Absolutely. Absolutely. It does. And I think that's what made this one a little different um, in regards to your question in the beginning with the whole community, you know, our unit and the army in that one specifically experienced a loss. And Matt was really liked by most of the community in the army that knew him. Um, he was just one of those guys that was always happy and great, had a good family. And, uh, you know, it, it always seems to happen to one of those guys that everybody likes in those instances. And, uh, without the ability to process it, um, versus the, the one before, um, yeah, it really, it really kind of concentrated the, uh, the, uh, issues that arise from that. Do you ever stop to think about why Matt's stuck with you more than the others? I mean, you know, and I know it could be more personal as you know the person more personally. Um, but, you know, we've talked to a lot of people who, you know, they get caught off guard sometimes by the things that sort of stay with them uh, and the losses that stay with them from, you know, ones that didn't. I'm just kind of curious if you ever bothered to process why Matt meant more than others. Um. You know, I'd say Matt and Dave, uh, the two that I lost uh, from from 62nd from our team, um, specifically stuck with me the most, even though I had other friends. Um, I think it was just because I was there and they were in my unit, so it made it a little more personal. And, you know, you get to know those guys a little bit better. Um, and Matt was specifically, he was just one of those guys that was always happy. Um, never seemed to have a bad day. He was always smiling, even when stuff was crappy um, going on. And uh, one of the moments we shared before we deployed was uh, we were actually at JRTC doing our, our pre-deployment training, and we were able to uh, find an open washing machine to wash our clothes, and we were washing clothes together, just kind of sharing stories while we we're waiting for that stuff to go on. And that was just like a moment that just he and I shared that nobody else was around for. And uh, I, th- I think just stuff like that, little little moments you share like that stick with you, I'd have to say that's why. So day to day life, what's it like for you now? Uh, now it's 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 pretty pretty chill. It's it's pretty great. Um, you know, I'm able to spend a lot more time with my family and and focus on them, which is really good for me and them because um, I was gone a lot while I was active. Um, so I came back, you know, from that first Iraq deployment to to a one year old that didn't know me, and you know now we were able to you know spend time together. She's able to you know, learn cooking from me or, you know, able to, you know, take vacations with the family. And it's, that's pretty nice. Um, day to day, you know, I'm able to get up happy that I'm still breathing, you know, head in, head into work. And, uh, you know, I've got an office with a, uh, retired SF warrant officer and two active UD techs, you know, in the, in the SF group. And we're able to go around as a, uh, as a team and, uh, you know, help prepare people for the environment they're going to be going to. To that end, you're now teaching other EOD techs uh, inside the Special Forces community. So I got super lucky. Um, you know, I went to the Wounded Warrior Battalion out here at Carson, and there's not a lot of work for guys like me in the Colorado area. Um, so I got really lucky that the job position that I took initially opened like three weeks before I got out on retirement, um, which was at the 71st EOD group at Fort Carson as a counter IED trainer for EOD guys. And, uh, I applied for that and pursued it heavily and I was able to get it. 
And that actually made my transition out of the army really, really easy. Like I got lucky there just cause I was back with the same unit and people I was with the whole time I was active and deployed with, um, just wearing civilian clothes and still trying to mentor and help people. So that was super lucky. Um, and then after six years of doing that, um, I made the jump over to 10th group after I'd made some relationships and, uh, I'm enjoying the uh, the change of pace and helping those guys out now. So when you're doing that, is there any sort of catharsis in it for you as far as reconciling your injuries and, and the greater purpose? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it's helped me deal with it, you know, tremendously being able to like give back and lend my expertise, my opinion and my, my experience to other guys that are going to be going downrange. Um, and sometimes I'm able to use my, my injuries, you know, in a somewhat lighthearted manner, you know, joking about it, like we did at the beginning with the, the, the finger joke, you know, I, I make that joke actually pretty often as an opener with guys I don't know, uh, to mixed results, but, uh, it, it does, it does help me a lot to deal with stuff, to be able to, you know, give back and help out people. Tell me about the students that you're, you're coaching and teaching and sort of, Anything that they say to you, I mean, have, have you had a situation like where somebody you taught went down range and came back and told you what you told them was invaluable, something like that? Yeah, um, we actually have. Uh, I've had that happen when I was working at the uh, the EOD group. And then uh, most recently, 2nd Battalion um, from 10th group got back a little while ago. And they were able to come back to us and say, hey, the pre-deployment training you gave us was uh, pretty helpful. And then, you know, they'd go through some of the some of the encounters they had and uh, explain it. And then we're able to take that, that feedback and kind of adjust what we're teaching to the next group of guys uh, going out, which is, which is really appreciated by them because we're keeping uh you know, stuff kind of current. What is your ultimate goal in teaching now? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'd say uh, just, making sure guys are as prepared as they can be for the, uh, for the combat zones they're going to, um, to make sure they're safe and, uh, just pass my knowledge and experience around, uh, to make sure what happened to me doesn't happen to anybody else. When you look back on the experience, uh, not just necessarily your injury and what happened, is there anything you wish you had done different? Um, you know, I can't, I can't say that I can think of anything right now. Um, there's, there's not much I can think of that I, that I've done different, to be honest. Uh, you know, I'm in a good place now and I got here from the stuff I've done previous and I absolutely enjoy the EOD career field and helping people out in, in the way that we can. So, you know, I've got no regrets really. Is there a golden rule of EOD? Uh, I think looking cool is at the top, but, you know, <laughs> um, no, I, I can't say there, you know, I can't speak for the whole community as one golden rule. Um, I can say between my two deployments and in the guys and friends that I've lost, um, I, I've learned and grown so much from my Iraq deployment to my Afghan deployment, uh, with Jason, who had, uh, had recommended me to come on the show with you guys, um, in the beginning, I was kind of, uh, you know, that typical EOD tech that rubs everybody the wrong way because, you know, I wouldn't work with people and I'd say, no, this is the way we're going to do it. And by the time I was in the Afghanistan deployment, um, you know, 
integrating better. I'd say I did that very well. Um, I was able to work with guys a lot better on the ground and it fostered a lot better relationships and, you know, the teamwork was a lot better that way. Because of all the demands on EOD, are things better, worse, or just different in the EOD community now? Oh man, that, that, that could be a whole nother like conversation. Like, um, I'd say they're just different. Um, a lot of the, uh, the guys with the experience from early OIF, OEF, you know, are getting out. Um, so there's a lot of new blood in the field, which, is, you know, has some pluses and minuses. Um, I think as a whole, the, the experience is kind of, some of it has been forgotten. Um, and some lessons are having to be relearned. Um, but otherwise, you know, the force is growing in a good way too. Uh, we're, we're supporting soft a lot more now with the army. Um, SF used to use solely Navy EOD. Um, and now the army is supporting the army. And, uh, I think that's the direction we need to go. And they're, uh, they're putting in a lot of good work downrange and helping a lot of people out still. So overall, you know, things are different, but I, I think, I think we're headed in the right direction. Well, to that end, I mean, clearly, you know, your work post military career is almost as important as the work you've done throughout your military career. Uh, you know, it's hard to quantify the number of lives you've saved, uh, just by defusing bombs and, and getting them out of the way and, uh, you know, allow, allowing average Joes like me on the ground to go do their job uh, and, and drive from point A to point B uh, and, and be as relatively safe as we can without, you know, having to deal with uh, things that we can't see. So to that end, you know, personally, I thank you, but uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of a lot of people who know that EOD is not necessarily like angels on our shoulders, but they certainly were uh, a nice little extra force to have on the ground to keep us safe. And to that end, man, and you know, uh, I think there should be a lot of pride in what you've done and what you've accomplished. And, and uh, despite the fact that you were left with injuries, I, I don't know that you can sit here and, and look upon your work as anything other than just kick ass stuff, man. Well, I really, I really appreciate that. You know, sometimes we get a lot of shit for the, you know, the wait times people have to sit on a court on or, you know, uh, personalities clashing and stuff. Um, so, you know, that, that's appreciated. For sure. Yeah, and again, a lot of that's in the heat of the moment. Um, you know, absolutely. I I remember being out there waiting and sitting there going, "Man, we got to go. What the hell are we doing?" You know, the longer we stand here, the longer they can have more time to to mount a hasty attack on us. But in reality, when you look back on it, the, the, just numbers were not in your favor. They weren't in anybody's favor. I mean, there there were much more bombs than anybody could ever defuse at any sort of rate. That was something amenable. So uh, you know. I, I don't blame Absolutely. I don't blame any EOD guys for not moving quick enough. Uh, you know, yes. Uh, l- let me go try to defuse a bomb quickly. I, you're not MacGyver, you know. <laughs> that, like that that, yeah. that doesn't play. So from that end, um, you know, I, I know that in retrospect, everybody, mostly everybody, would agree that that you guys did the best with what you had, and and uh, nobody had any angst about again the countless number of lives you saved. I mean, I, I logged thousands of miles on the roads of Iraq, and it was guys like you. Um, who, who got me home back safe after 15 months. So it, it's not anything like, you know, that uh, anybody should sit there and be mad at at this point in time. That Yeah, I can't argue with that. So, <laughs> well, Mike, listen, uh, I wish you nothing but the best. You know, uh, again, uh, injuries and all, continue to live uh, the life that you do as best you can and, and continue to, to train and equip our force uh, because that even is much more of a lasting impact than any bomb you've ever defused. Uh, so to that end, you know, certainly thank you for all that you've done, your honesty, telling your story, and certainly thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and uh appreciate what you guys are doing out here. 
You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.